Do I say something? Do I not say something? Welcome to Necessary Rebels. I'm Sandra. And I'm Kanna. We're two professional women who are passionate about tackling racism and inequalities in life and work. Whether you're in the USA or the UK, change is happening. Do you want to know how to be actively anti-racist? Do you want advice on challenging racism? Do you know how to have those uncomfortable conversations? Then lean in and join us with great tips from professionals on how to be a necessary rebel. Welcome to our guest today, Meg Lyons. Meg is a learning and development professional and coach who believes that leading from the heart is a rebellious way to live and work in the modern world. We invited Meg onto the show today to ask about the work she's doing to support active anti-racism. Welcome, Meg. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So nice to have you here. Absolutely. So can you tell us a bit about where you're from and and a bit about yourself and the work you do? So I grew up in North Carolina in the U.S. And when I was 23, I moved to the U.K. for a bit of an adventure, I suppose. Um, My parents are retired teachers. And so growing up, we really loved to travel and they in particular loved Um, coming to Europe. And so I was exposed at a really early age to uh, lots of different countries and cultures and landscapes. And so, yeah, when I was sort of early 20s, I came to the UK with my work and thinking I might stay for two years. And nearly 20 years later, I'm still here. So there was something. Wow. (laughs) That's how it happened. That's how it happened. So I guess we we were keen to to get started with kind of how you you feel about you know the the Black Lives Matter movement. Is there a kind of particular um, personal moment that you want to talk about, um, and any experiences that made you want to get involved in anti racism work? Yeah, well, I suppose in some ways, if I think back. 2015 might have been in some ways a turning point for me generally. I was at a bit of a, a point in my career where I, did, I didn't feel as if I was making the difference I wanted to in the world. I was kind of doing work that had lost its meaning a bit. And at that kind of crossroads, I discovered coaching. And essentially, I trained in coaching with the Coaches Training Institute and became a, a professional coach. And so in many ways, that was the start for me about trying to understand myself better, trying to understand the impact that I want to have in the world. And more recently, I've really been just curious with this idea of kind of scarcity mindset and what happens when, you know, as people, we feel that there's not enough or as people, we we feel that we are not enough. And so that kind of led me down a bit of a, a train of thought about fairness and you know, why is it that some people in life, you know, have have a better setup or they have more privileges just because of what they're born into? So I I was curious about that to to the point of feeling like I wanted to have some deeper conversations about that, try to understand fairness and what that means to me as a human. And so I started working with a therapist at the beginning of this year. And then also at the beginning, probably January of this year, I read Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson and was just bowled over by, you know, the stories that he tells of the injustice in prison system in the U.S. And, of course, knowing that that won't be just in the U.S., but it was just so pronounced in that particular 
book. And again, that was almost this sense of like, wow, how is it that in this day and age, there is this prevailing sense of injustice and, and that systems allow it to happen. Um, so that was, that was the beginning of this year for me. And then in May with George Floyd's murder, it was really a point of how can, how can I not do more? How can I not see more? How can I not more active. I remember we had a chat about Just Mercy when you were reading it. You, we had a little chat about it and how moved by some of those stories and how angry you were about that as well and how it made you feel. And I just thought, okay, all right. I, 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 it gave me a sense of who you were a little bit about the work that you were starting to do. And this was before George Floyd. So I kind of got a sense of who you were even before um, this had happened. And I think we kind of connected a little bit at that time just by talking about Just Mercy. And if you haven't read it, I'm saying to our listeners, please read it. It's a fantastic book. And that's interesting, that that word anger, because I really, I suppose all my life, I've generally been someone who tries to keep peace and I really value harmony. And I think generally that helps me oftentimes be successful in groups where I'm trying to help people know that their voices matter and I really try to have a big focus on whenever I'm facilitating a group or working with people trying to make sure that all voices are heard Um, but also that's been part of my learning this year is that you know in my attempt to keep peace or my attempt to keep harmony where has that maybe also led me to be quiet or to be silent and that's definitely been there's the Martin Luther King quote that's been a real eye-opener to me And so this quote by um, Martin Luther King is, we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. And that just for me makes me feel like, yeah, I've probably been really quiet or not been aware of how my silence maybe has, has meant that I've been complicit in the system of, of racism. So. Can I quickly ask, just going back to the word anger, are you saying that you started to feel you you were angry about the way things were? And why do you think you you became angry? What did you see that was making you angry, essentially? I suppose from, from Just Mercy, that particular book, it was more this sense of there's so, in, in many of those stories of um for the most part, I believe it's it's black men who are incarcerated. There's often so there's no evidence that leads them to these convictions, and so it's just that I just had that real sense of just being appalled that there could be a, there can be systems in place that would allow for truth to not be heard. You know to perhaps assume guilt rather than what is supposed to be the opposite, you know, assume innocence. And I suppose it just, yeah, really, really made me angry. And also I know I heard a quote once that said that anger is the bodyguard of sadness. So I think really if if I was feeling anger, I was also feeling sadness that you know, someone's life could not be seen as mattering. And, you know, this sense of right and wrong that just seemed totally 
fabricated and not real, not grounded in any sense of truth, that would take someone's freedom away. Do you think that was the kind of turning point for you reading Just Mercy, or do you think there were other kind of personal experiences that you had that made you want to get involved in anti-racism work? Or, you know, what was the shift for you? What was the thing? I think if I'm honest, reading that book did have, it did really resonate deeply with me. If I'm honest, I read that book, appreciated it, and didn't really do anything. You know, I feel that feels hard to say now, but that's probably really the truth of it. And I think it was, it was George Floyd's, you know, such, such visible and shared murder that really made me totally say to myself, it, that's, I'm seeing it now in a different way. And for better or for worse, I probably wish I'd been able to see things differently before, but I'm seeing it now. And, you know, I have to change now. I have to not be aware and not do anything. I want to read something that you sent to me. It was your very first email to me that you sent um, right after George Floyd. And it really, and I think I wrote back and said, I love you or something like that. I was just um, blown away I by what... I remember your reply. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> just remember being really blown away by it. And it said, I have been thinking of you, remembering some of our chats about your family in the U.S. and how you have those conversations with your nephews to help them in their journeys to stay well and safe. I am hopeful that this will be a moment in the world where we are all awakened to the need to do more to tackle systemic issues of racial injustice, for white people to confront that we need to do more to be better allies and to do more to educate ourselves, understand our role in the systems being where they are now, and for us to come together to imagine and create a future that is different to what we're seeing play out in the world today on the small scale and a big scale. And I just thought, at that particular time, it was exactly what I needed to hear. And I used this email that you sent as an example to other white colleagues I had come into contact with, because I just thought this is exactly what I needed to hear at that time, that, that you were thinking about what your role was and what your place was in this work and how could you be better. And it, by you being better, then other people could could follow your lead and be better as well. Do you know what I mean? And so it re- I really kind of, it sat with me for a while um, reading that. And, and after that, we kind of kept exchanging emails back and forth about what we were both reading at the time and, and what, what you were learning. And I just thought um, if there was ever an example of an ally, you had presented me with it. Yeah, and, and I just thought people should hear kind of the work that you're doing and, and what, you, what you've what you done to to get where you are today. And, and, and that you recognize there's still a lot of work to do, that you're not, you're not there yet, but you know, you're getting there. So tell us more about the kind of anti-racism work that you're doing. I think one thing actually, before I move to that, I remember, I can actually remember those moments of, of thinking, you know, who, who do I want to get in touch with? Who do I want to let know that, that I, and that really was it, like that I'm thinking of you and that I'm here committed to doing something. And I probably, who knows how long it took me to write that email because I might have, you know, I think possibly one of the thoughts going through my head 
when I would write something like that was, is this going to land right? You know, am I going to say something wrong? And I think, again, that's probably just a moment of what, how do I need to just connect to my heart? How do I be willing to not stay quiet? How do I be willing to like maybe say something that doesn't land right and still make the effort? So I think that, again, possibly for, for many white people might have been some sense of, do I say something? Do I not say something? What if I say it wrong? All of those questions, I think, can sometimes be really paralyzing. And I think my feeling is, if it comes from the heart, and if, if someone can write something to connect and build a bridge, hopefully, we have to hope it will land in the way it does. And also, maybe for that, for someone receiving that same email on a different day, Maybe even if you'd received that on a different day, it might not have, I don't know, it could have maybe had a different impact, but I think it felt worth worth doing, worth writing. Well, you took a chance, and I think it was, def- I, as far as I'm concerned, I think it's worth taking a chance and, and, and understanding you may not always get it right, but unless you take a chance, you won't know you've gotten it right or wrong. You need to, you need to have the courage to take the kind of first step. And I thought, that's what you did. You kind of took the courage to to make that first step. And I know you've been really active in lots of other areas as well. I mean, I could go on and on about all the kind of messages that you've shared with me about work you've done at your children um, at schools and kind of conversations you've had. I think you've started a book club. There were a lot. There bit that you've been you've been very active. Um, so it'd be good to hear a little bit about what that's been like for you. So I have an advantage in a way in that I love reading. So I think probably the the attitude and the mindset I've gone into this process holding is I have to first just be a learner. I have to have humility. I have to accept there's going to be so much that I don't know, but I have to be willing to, you know, kind of do the work, do my own work to learn. I've I've got a lot of books. <laughs> um, I've listened to a lot of podcasts. Um, I've, you know, tried to engage in conversations with people. And probably one of the places that I feel like I've learned the most is uh, working through a specific book with a group of fellow coaches. And that has um, that book is Layla Saad's Me and White Supremacy. And she set that up as a kind of 28-day challenge um, mainly, you know, a bit of context and then really a bit of reflection, journaling questions around topics like uh, white privilege, um, white fragility, white apathy, white silence. You know, tw- there's 28 days. Um, this group, we've just, we're just coming to the end. And so there's a, a section about commitments. And so that's kind of some of the work that I have ahead of me this week is to really get clear on my commitments to myself around this work. But I think the thing I've realized is it's a marathon, not a sprint. So really, at first it was like, okay, I've got to get this book. I've got to read this book. And it's like, wow, there are 24 hours in a day. I can only read so much. I can only, you know, take in so much. And so I think that's the place where I'm just trying to make sure it's not just about me absorbing content and learning. And I'm also just trying to be even 
even a tiny bit more active in doing some things about it. And so I can think of a few examples where, you know, like I've written to the mayor in Louisville and, you know, said what's happening with the charges against the officers and Brianna Taylor's death, like, you know, what's happening? I would not have written that email a year ago. I've written, I saw a video of a man being arrested in his home in Raleigh, North Carolina, where, and I read a follow-up that he, he never even got an apology from the police department. And so I just thought, how horrible, you know, he's been his own, he's at his own home. He's been invaded in his own home for nothing, for, for nothing. He's been treated horribly and they've not even apologized. And I just, it's like, where's the humility in that process? So I wrote to the police department. I said, I'm really curious. What are you doing about your, you know, education of your police force about some of these things? I did a lot of these things. I haven't had a reply. So, you know, it's, it's probably to be expected. It's not to say I'm going to stop writing. Don't stop writing. If you get a reply, do share that with us because we, we'd like to know what the reply is. You spoke about the word privilege and that you've been doing lots of self-reflection. Can you tell us a bit more about kind of your awareness of your own privilege and what that looks like? Yeah, as I say, I think I had this, for whatever reason in my own self, again, it was the beginning of this year in particular, before, I'm sure, but, you know, 7 billion people in the world, why have, why am I who I am? Why do I have the things I have? And just, I suppose, trying to just grapple with that question about, you know, why do some people seem to have, you know, quote unquote, an easier time than others? Um, And I think if in particular, this is one of the the words that or the terms that sometimes people struggle with and I think the reality is uh, white privilege or you know privilege doesn't mean that things have been easy but I just think it's an awareness that I've not maybe as a white person had some barriers in my way that have meant that certain things for me have probably been easier than for black people or people of color Yes, they, they've been easier. You know, if there's one group of people that's disadvantaged, there will be a group of people that are advantaged. <laughs> it's logic almost. And how, well, yeah, I guess it's about how you, how you recognize that as part of your work. And how are you making sure that you're as part of that? Are you, are you uplifting Black voices or voices of people of color as part of your work? And as part of your privilege, calling out racism around you defending others when you witness injustice that's that's part of your privilege as well and what comes to mind for me is possibly that sense of again before before this particular time you know in a way it's one of those things like questioning like well do I have privilege or don't I like how do I know how much of it I have you know I think sometimes in organizations it can be really interesting when you've got hierarchies and you know positions of power who's who's a leader who or who has say an official leadership role who manages teams that sort of thing um so I think it can be one of those particular words that sometimes people might say well you know maybe I don't have as much privilege as I think or how do I actually know how much I have but in 
particular, one of the things that I remember thinking was um, there was a podcast, uh, 1619, by the New York Times magazine. And I think it was in that one they did a particular section about loans to farm owners. So there was this whole situation where basically black farm owners were not receiving their loans in time and their entire business and, you know, their livelihood was at, at risk. And it was because of their skin color. And I also, I think there's, um, in the, in the context of, of white privilege, there's a, a list of questions you can ask yourself, you know, have you ever, if you've ever been pulled over, could it be because of the color of your skin? If you've ever been stopped in a shop or any, some of those questions. And so that, that was a, point where I was like well no I haven't so that was that realization about okay my skin color is a privilege because it's not put me under any particular threat or I've you know it's not been any barrier and so again I think that was a real eye-opener around the world in in our current form is very white you know it's everything is toward the white gaze and it's all about whiteness. It's always easy to think of privilege as being just economic or just to do with positions of power but actually privilege can be just having the freedom to leave your house you know it can be where you go on holiday it can be whether or not you get served in a restaurant so it it isn't just those huge huge things it's it's kind of every day it's are your children safe you know comes in many forms yeah that's right are you having to have those conversations with your children about being stopped by the police or being in the wrong place simply because of this color of your skin? White people don't have those conversations with their children. That is a privilege. If we look at the statistics, it's all there, right? This isn't controversial. Like, it's all there. As a Black woman, I'm four times more likely to die in childbirth, more likely to have a stillborn baby more likely to die of heart-related diseases. I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on and on. And that is compared to white women. And so that is a privilege. So when you think about that, because I've asked colleagues about this as well, when, how does it make you feel? That I'm, How does it make you feel to know that I am four times more likely, and actually in some places I'm five times more likely to die in childbirth than you? Like when you think about that, I know you, you know me we're friends. How does that make you feel? It makes me go, why? That's the question, why? And how can we change it? So that's interesting that my first two questions are my mental, my brain going, why and how? In my body, I feel terrified. And I'm just, and I I remember you're telling me some of those stats and I've gone and I've done a tiny bit of research on like, what's you know, what is that about? I haven't found any answers yet, but, you know, I've been curious about some of the concepts of, you know, generational trauma. How does that play into even the, the, possibly the childbirth process? You know, what's that, what's going on biologically and stress levels? And, you know, so I have, I have certainly more questions. Well, hopefully we're going to get a doctor on one of our episodes to explain. One of the things that we wanted to ask you about was, is there any kind of moment in time where you you can now look back 
and recall an experience you might have had or, or something you might have seen where you think, at the time, I didn't realize that that was racial inequality or microaggression that I now realize from all the work I've been doing. I'm more aware of that now. Yeah, I think my my spotlight feels pretty tuned into that now. I can think of a time when I was meeting some a new group of people for the first time and I confused two people and I probably confused them because of the color of their skin. And that doesn't make me feel good to say that now, but I think that's probably what happened. And then also, actually, I need to make a call to someone this week to possibly, with some curious empathy, see if I need to make a, an apology or a reparation bid where maybe I took the, the focus off the person who was sharing something and maybe put it back onto myself. So I think I'm, I'm generally more aware of things like white centering. I'm, I'm pretty, generally, I try to pay a lot of attention to respectful listening and making sure that people don't you know, interrupt each other. I, I'm sure I also get that wrong. Like I get a lot of things wrong. I had a, an instance where I, I think sometimes WhatsApp and social media is tricky. You know, I uh, maybe stayed quiet on something on a thread and it uh, turns out I should have spoken up. So that was, again, maybe my lesson on entering the conversation and at least sharing, you know, how I'm feeling on things to be an ally, to let people know that, you know, something's not okay or, you know, that staying quiet isn't isn't the right thing to do. So that's probably some of my learnings on that. They've, each of them has been hard too. You know, I think that's a, a message perhaps to white people doing this work is it won't feel good and it won't feel easy sometimes to know that, um, you know, I speak for myself that I've not always been a perfect human being. <laughs> you know, I think I try to, I try to do my best. And so to have to look back and think, Hmm, I messed up there. Is it as kind of, when you've tried to make reparations or when you've tried to kind of, you know, pedal back, is it as, as bad and as scary as, as what your mind tells you it might be to kind of, to go back and say, actually, hold up. I just want to, I just want to say something or do something differently here. So when people are like, I don't know if I should say anything. I don't know if I should send that letter to Sandra. Is it really that bad when you, once you've done it? I think like a lot of these things, the, the, the fear of doing it is probably worse than once it's done. Like, again, I, I'm really curious about neuroscience and what goes on in our brains. And I, I, I know as a person, I have a real deep sense of belonging. So I want to be, con you know, connections, one of my key values. And so anytime I'm either in possible disconnection with someone or there's a risk of disconnection, that makes me sometimes get a bit frozen. And I think it's probably just for me to recognize, oh, okay, this is what's going on. It's probably going to be better to send the email or say something than not do it. And also, I think my new thing is really going in with, I don't have to, I don't want to have to be right about this, but I just want to share something. Or here's, here's something I've been wondering about and thinking about, and I'd like to share it with you. And that goes kind of back to what you were saying about 
from the heart rather than with the with the overactive mind that's getting really anxious about these things is just lead from the heart what do you believe is the right thing to do is that what you're trying to say yeah yeah oh my mind is a messy place (laughs) (laughs) i'm just going to take it back to white privilege just because part of the conversations i'm having right now and kind of in my work life is white people denying the concept of white privilege these are kind of the conversations of um colleagues not wanting to uh, they believe i have heard from colleagues that they believe white privilege is separate from racism like it's a separate completely separate thing but we know it isn't can't have white privilege without racism they 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 run hand in hand it's it's not possible for it for them to be two separate entities so what would you say to to white people who deny that concept so i suppose if i'm grounded and tried to you know live some of the things i would i would say i believe in i'd probably try to ask questions to get curious to understand you know that point of view i think that's been one of my learnings in this process is for the most part as i've read and understood um systemic racism for me it's made it's made total sense i've been like oh okay yep that's i get that wow so my experience has been that i i feel it it, it exists and i can see why it exists and i can see how it continues sometimes when i've read something i've then gone and tried to research well what do the critics of that person say like what is it what is the other viewpoint that maybe on my initial reading or my initial understanding I didn't get and I suppose that just helps me try to understand well what have I missed or you know what other points of view exist here and what might be important in my own critical thinking to understand um, different perspectives but again I think for for me in particular and Um, We mentioned it already, this idea of how does white privilege show up? And I think there's this, is it Peggy McIntosh, a list of 50 examples of white privilege. And I think probably we could find that online. But it's things like if a traffic cop pulls me over or if my tax returns get audited, I can be sure I haven't been singled out because of my race. I can be sure that if I need legal or medical help, my race will not work against me. So I think for, for me, those questions are just like, have revealed that I've just never had my race be part of any anything that might be perceived as like unfairness or not not getting what I need, not feeling supported. So I think it would be probably to encourage that as like some sort of learning resource that could be looked at but yeah I mean that that's also I think there's this place of this is maybe a more difficult side of activism and again maybe I need to be in this space more is currently in my own learning I have created spaces for my learning where I feel like I'm in a group of people who are also there to do the work and they're there to learn and there's a real openness and humility and curiosity about our role in systemic racism and so I'm not sure I've hit too much of that real sort of like I I don't think this exists or I don't believe in this and so 
again, maybe that's my next step in terms of going into the conversations that feel more difficult. But certainly for me, starting with people who who feel like they're willing to be curious and willing to explore has been helpful. Also, another another book that I just would recommend maybe in particular for parents and a colleague recommended it to me, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me, so his, his story written to his son. And I just, so I've got two young boys and I just, you know, are really connected to that feeling of, gosh, how, what must it be like to have to worry about sending your kids out to school or, you know, letting them go out in the early afternoon or evening and that fear of what if they don't come back. And, you know, I have that, I have that feeling as a parent, as probably many parents do, but just that real sensitivity around the awareness that Black parents must have, how you have those conversations with, with your children, those sorts of things that must be so difficult, so unfair. Yes, yes, it is, it is. You spoke a lot about the importance of self-education and being curious and being open and I guess being empathetic. You really spoke a lot about um, putting yourself in those shoes to understand one's own privilege. And if we wanted to go further and say it's really good to know about racism and how racism shows up, but if we want people to go further and be actively anti-racist, what's your advice for people that want to go further? Um, how can people carry on this movement? For myself, I, I know that I have personally really committed to it, to this not being something that I stopped doing, you know, at the end of 2020 or when, you know, whatever the return of whatever comes after COVID, you know. So I think I, I have made a real personal <laughs> commitment to be saying to myself, you know, in a year, will this, will these be the types of conversations I'm still having? And my personal commitment to that is yes. Um, I think a space for me that feels still to explore is around that intersection between the personal. So what can each of us as individuals do versus then what needs to happen around systems and policies and, you know, laws and and that sort of thing that I definitely need probably to do more, get more understanding about. And I think it's continuing to talk about it. And I think this is one of the things that is interesting and in particular, why I think now and, you know, that moment in May when we were all at home, you know, how could we not, how we were so not busy anymore. We were out of that rush, rush, busy. We were in lockdown. And so I think that's why George Floyd's murder was so profound because it was like our attention was there. And so I think for me, that's the place of like, I still just have to keep my attention on this. I still have to be making choices about prioritizing my time for this work over other things. I think voting, you know, that feels more important than ever. Understanding the political process more. I'd like to say to someone, how can I help here? You know, if there's a way for me to be active in my allyship and you see a way of my doing it, please let me know. And that's not without any sense of like, oh, okay. And if you don't tell me, I'm going to do nothing, you know, but from each of our vantage points, if there's 
something that I can do that I don't see, I'm happy to to do that. The letters you've been writing and, you know, just just kind of making others aware and, and also going back to people and saying, you know, I uh, just want to say something. Is All of that is, is active anti-racism. It's not passive, you know. Yes, that's right. It's it's all part of the work. I mean, you even, uh, just looking at another email you sent, you said yesterday, I spent some time writing to my MP about the free school meals over the summer raised by Marcus Rashford and wrote a letter to support the release of a young man who was imprisoned after Ferguson riots, whose parole is coming up. I mean, these are all just examples of what people can be doing right now to be actively anti-racist. And, and you and you are doing it, and you are doing it, and you continue to do it. And I think that's really, really important. I think for white people, being um, anti-racist evolves with understanding what, or evolves with your racial identity development. So you have to acknowledge and understand your privilege and work to change um, your internalized racism and interrupt racism when you see it. I think that's part of the work. That's part of what needs to happen for there to be change. Yeah, I think we all have a part to play. We need we need white people to be our allies. You are the majority and we need you to be part of this work and that's really really important we need you to use your voices and speak up we need you when you are in spaces and you're noticing microaggressions that you are speaking up we need you to be an active bystander so again using your privilege to speak up when you're noticing things these things are really 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 important and that's 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 part of what you should be doing you are doing it but you should be doing it. So I kind of went, because I get lots of uh, other emails from lots of white colleagues. I, I, I sometimes feel like I didn't get this impression from you, but I do get this impression that they kind of want to pat on the back. But I kind of think, actually, no, this is work you should be doing. Like, I'm not going to pat you on the back. You should be doing this work. Everybody should be doing work. Everybody, not just white people. We've got work to do, too. Everybody should be doing the work and it should just become like no, a normal part of the process that we all just keep educating ourselves and, and you know, looking for resources to help us uh, make better decisions about when we see these things and, and how we react to these things and how we and our behaviors. We need to have behavior changes, behavior shifts and, and how we how we see people of color, how we see black people. All of that needs to change. But it starts it starts with you. So. Do the homework, do your research, listen to what people of color have to say, listen to their lived experiences. And I just want to say, Meg, you've been fantastic. It's been so wonderful to talk to you about this. And, you know, it was brave of you to come up here, come up, come onto our uh, podcast and talk about the work that you're doing. But I think that's really important. And I hope you feel that that was important for you too. And also to say on the the looking good, I think this is an interesting af- aspect of allyship is, is really that sense of, I, I want to do this work not to look good, but because this is the right thing to do. So I'm smiling as you've mentioned the emails and I suppose I'm, I'm sending them in a spirit of connection and support, not for you to, to say, you know, oh, you're doing a good job. Like, I, I just need to know in my heart, am I doing the best I can in my journey with this work? But it's it, it's not for praise. It's just because it's the right thing to do. 
Thank you. Thank you for saying that. But thank you so much. And it definitely probably was a scary thing to come on and it takes courage but we hope you've inspired courage in others um because we need to all you know collectively do this work and move things forward thank you so much thank you for having me you can find necessary rebels on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and on instagram at necessary underscore rebels underscore pod We hope you've enjoyed listening to Necessary Rebels. This was an II Studios production. We'll see you for the next episode. Thank you for listening.